Before we get into the Word, we're going to uh, hear testimony today. We've been trying to do that on a more regular basis uh, with scheduling things. We haven't been able to do it recently, but today we get a special treat because Lauren and Christy are going to come up and share their testimony with us. Let's welcome them. I get to go first because I don't like talking in front of people, so I'm getting it over with. Um, (laughs) Well, um, I am the granddaughter of a pastor. Um, My grandpa passed away some time ago, but he was a pastor. Um, Unfortunately, even though my grandfather was a pastor, I never heard that I remember the gospel. So I um, did not know... Um, in my heart, that Christ died for me. It was always assumed. In my family, if you went to church, I was a very compliant child. Um, I was a good kid. Oh, you know, she must know God. And so when I was seven years old, we lived in Moore, Oklahoma, and I went to church with a friend of mine, Little Baptist Church, and I still remember the red carpet down the aisle. And... um, For the first time that I can remember, I heard about Jesus dying for my sins and how I needed him. Um, And I cried, and I went down the aisle, and I accepted Christ um, that afternoon, that evening. Um, Unfortunately, because of my background, and I did not have discipleship, I was not... um, I was really confused as a kid about exactly how to please God, what to do to please God. It was always like, do, do, do. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And there was never any really training. Um, When I was 15 years old, we moved to St. Louis, St. Charles, actually. And I went to France Town North, and I got involved in (laughs) – Mark's over there going, yeah – I got involved in Knights of the Cross, a Christian group at school, and I met Mike and Ben Quimrell, and they invited me to TFC. Thank you, Mike. (laughs) And I walked down the stairs, okay, and I didn't know what to expect. I walked down the stairs, and Tim Ward is downstairs singing the booger song. Now, if any of you guys... No Tim Ward. I mean, I was just like, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? Because this is not what I was used to. Um, And so Tim Ward introduced me to this revelational concept called this, you know, relationship. And I did not know about a relationship with Christ. And so through my years, I was 15. Through my years at TFC, you know, I grew in my walk with the Lord some of that confusion cleared, and um, I realized what it meant to to serve him, to love him, to know him. And um, there are three things, three events that happened in my life that are extremely vivid in my mind. Um, before I got married, no offense, babe, but <laughs> there are many after, but these three specific things were pivotal to my growth as a believer. Um, one of these concepts were, is that God is 
my father, and he loves me. Um, as I was growing up, I read a lot of romance novels as a kid. It was just, you know, my mom read them, I read them. Um, it was no big deal, really. Um, I didn't know that I was searching for something. I was looking for something to fill this void in my life. Even though I'd accepted Christ, like I said, there was no training, no teaching. And um, I was watching, it was February 2004 when The Passion of the Christ came out. And I was watching The Passion of the Christ. And at this particular time, these, these novels have become a stronghold in my life, something that I just I could not get rid of. And I was watching The Passion, and, and Jesus was dying on the cross. And I remember being in the theater and crying, crying, crying. And I go to my car, and I just start sobbing. And I, and I remember saying to the Lord, why? I said out loud in my car, why? Why? I don't understand why. And he said, as clear as day, he said, because I love you. And I just started, I mean, I lost it, even more than I'd already lost it before. And that was life-changing for me because it was like that stronghold had just started crumbling. I could feel the walls crumbling in my heart because I'd finally understood what I'd been looking for all those years, which is God is my father and he loves me. And um, another thing that was really pivotal in my Christian walk was, um, was I was reading Voyage of the Dawn Treader one day. And it came to the part where Eustace had, was greedy and he, he, wanted, he saw the dragon's gold and he grabbed the dragon's gold. If you haven't read the story, fabulous story. Um, and he turned into a dragon. Well, along the progression of the story, he comes along Aslan. And Eustace is trying to get the scales of the dragon off of him. And he's clawing at them and clawing at them and clawing at them and he can't get the scales off. And Aslan says, you, you have to let me do it. You need to let me do it. And he's like, okay. So Aslan starts clawing at him, and Eustace is screaming because it's painful. Clawing, clawing, clawing. And finally, the scales are off, and, and Aslan grabs him in his mouth and throws him into the water. And he screams in pain. The scales are gone. And God spoke to me through that particular point in the book, and he's like, you have to let me Tear away the sin. Rip it away. And it's going to be painful. You know, it's painful. It's hard. But you have to let me do it. You can't do it. The last thing that really was a pivotal time in my life, God um, spoke to me was, um, actually it was about Lauren. Um, God is faithful. And it was August 1996, and I was on UMSL campus, South Campus teaching facility. And... It was an evening class, I remember, because the sun was setting, and I was walking to class, and I was mumbling something about Lauren. You know, he had made me mad about something, you know. <laughs> and at this, at this point, Lauren wasn't even on the radar, really, as my, you know. And I was like, ugh. And I, I got in my car, and I said, you know, I don't understand why I, I even care what Lauren Maloney thinks. And God said to me, because he is the one and I, I literally, I'm walking, and I literally turn and look because I thought I was hearing a conversation behind me. I thought I was hearing two people talk behind me. That's how clear it was. And I look, and there's nobody. The campus is dead silent. There's nobody around. And I'm just like, 
whoa. But God taught me his faithfulness to that experience because it wasn't until six years later that that was brought about through no, um, you know, pulling or anything of my own. It was, it was completely the Lord. So God taught me about his faithfulness through that because it was hard to wait for six years. <laughs> but God is faithful. And so, um, you know, Lauren and I got married. I was 30 years old. You know, marriage is very sanctifying and very eye-opening. <laughs> but what has sanctified me the most, I think, is having kids. I mean, I see myself mirrored and reflected in my boys, you know, um, in their actions, good and bad. I see that. And there is nothing more, um, I mean, there's nothing that stares me in the face more, you know, and causes me to go to my knees in repentance. Um, but that's it. My name is uh, Lauren Maloney. I've been um, with Liberty for 18 years, I think now, 18, something like that. Uh, <clears throat> I grew up in a middle-class, normal home. Um, I was an atheist um, as long as I can remember. I thought uh, that nature was all there was. You know, uh, it was Carl Sagan, I think, who stole our part of our liturgy when he said that nature is all there ever was, is, or ever will be. Um, that's what I thought. So I dismissed Christianity and all other religions out of out of hand. Um, convenient. Um, my dad was a, a practical atheist. He's not here today, but um, I don't know if he would have said he. He probably would have said he believed. I guess, but his life demonstrated that he didn't at all. And you know, I think probably the Bible tells us that when if we think we believe something, you know, the best way to find out is look at our lives and and then believe our lives. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> and I've gotten a heaviness the last 10 minutes or so, 20 minutes about this, so I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I think I'm supposed to. Um, this is not to uh, dishonor my father in any way, but he wasn't a believer, but he was not really available uh, emotionally um, to us children <clears throat> at all, and he was very busy and, and very, he worked a lot of hours, and um I say that to say that if you have children, uh, fathers, we have to engage with our children. And we cannot sit in front of the TV, we cannot do our favorite hobbies, and think it's okay with our children. I Probably, I don't know, if, if, we're, if parenting doesn't hurt, I think maybe we're not doing it right. It's, it's supposed to hurt. It's supposed to hurt. One of the most heartbreaking things, I still struggle with escape to, the, to this day. Sometimes I'll be sitting in front of the computer and I'll be telling myself, get up and go and engage with your kids. I have to keep telling myself that. Get up now. One of the things that breaks my heart most is Timothy. I'll be sitting on the couch or whatever, hanging out with the boys, and I'll pull out my phone and I'll be looking. Timothy will walk straight up and get in between me and the phone and push the phone away. I've never corrected him once for doing that, and I never will. And it breaks my heart. So, fathers, um, how important it is. You want your children to know God. You want your children to believe that God is loving and available and wonderful. Then we have to be loving, available, and wonderful because they will learn from what you do, not what you say. And so I did that well with my dad, so I became an atheist as well. 
met a, a Christian in high school with my best friend named Vince. I thought all Christians were idiots. I really did. Problem was, Vince was uh, graduated with the 4.2. And uh, that kind of threw a wrench in my little theory. On top of that, he actually witnessed to me. He, we, he, we lived down in Barnhart, about an hour away from here. He, he drove me. We went, to, we went fishing one day. He drove me like for an hour up to this place, all these lakes. Lakes everywhere. I'd never seen so many lakes in all my life. Little bitty lakes. Years later, when I was here, I realized it was actually bush wildlife that he drove me up to. <laughs> Gets me in the middle of the boat, in the middle of the lake, and starts witnessing to me again. I'm sweating. I'm changing the subject. I'm doing all my favorite tricks, you know. I just, I still resisted. There were a few times where I very specifically remember resisting the Holy Spirit. One time was at night in my bed. I was getting ready to fall asleep, and God spoke to me, and I literally rolled over and turned my back and, and said, I, I don't believe you in my heart. I don't believe in you. There was a very strong resistance. Uh, he also wrote me a letter, by the way. When he, he was a year ahead of me. He left for college and wrote me a letter, which I found like a year or two ago. It was pretty amazing. He witnessed to me again in the letter. He said, every time I talk to you, you change the subject, you're uncomfortable. I just want you to know that Jesus loves you. So what kind of state was I in? Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men. That was me. My godlessness and my wickedness. I was suppressing the truth by my wickedness. And what uh, may be known about God was plain to me, as well as to everybody, because God made it plain to me. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So I go to Mizzou. Oh, let me read you one other passage, too. Um, Ephesians 2. It was a good opportunity for me to reflect on what God's done when I was thinking about my testimony. This is where I was. As for you, Lauren, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among, their, among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature children of wrath. But God, because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. I was dead. All dead. Not, not mostly dead. Not partly alive. All dead. <clears throat> Went to Mizzou. Gentlemen, I knew nothing about religion, really, because I avoided it all my life. Gentleman invited me to a Bible study on the book of Philippians in his room. I said, sure. Well, I didn't even know he was trying to witness to me. I was so out of that. Yeah, I'll go, sure. Well, I, don't know, I don't know why you want me there. I don't know anything about the Bible. I've never read it once. I've only been in church twice. Once because of my cousin's confirmation, and once because I got tricked into going there in high school on a date. <laughs> it's a whole other story we don't have time for. But anyway, um, so we started reading the book of Philippians, and I'm, I read the Bible for the first time, and I couldn't figure out what, what this dude, Paul, what's his problem? I mean, he's in jail. Is he on drugs? Why is he so, why is he so happy? And my app is not working. Anyway, Philippians uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 14 talks about Paul's joy being imprisoned and... And the like. Um, so I remember very specifically that I, I asked him what he had to do to become a Christian. And so 
later on that night, I went into my dorm room by myself and I prayed to receive Christ. I have no idea what I prayed. Honestly, I think I prayed because I wanted joy and I think I wanted uh, uh, joy and I think I just wanted uh, life to get a little bit easier. So that's not a good reason to really convert. <laughs> so I had to learn later that really the real reason to become a Christian is because I'm going to hell and my sins are not forgiven. And either I will pay for them or Christ will. One of the two. Um, so I came to know the Lord, and I started going to Teens for Christ as well. Um, it was really an eye-opening experience. I had the opportunity to be trained by someone. My sister came to know Christ. My mom came to know Christ in this church. Um, and uh, really, the short story is I want God to get all the glory. My heart wants glory. Even now, my heart wants glory, being up here in front. I'm sorry for that, but God deserves all the glory for my salvation. Um, I went through a time, so I was trained. Um, God did some cool stuff. One quick story I thought I might tell you. I was working with a guy, Ben Davis, and I've told this story a few times. He's the son of uh, uh, Cynthia Davis and Bernie. I met them. Uh, I met him at Back to Basics one day. And he had to go back, and he forgot something. So he's like, let me go back in, in to my house and get with him. I think it's his Bible, actually. The Lord said, pray for the people alongside the road that you're going to witness to when he comes back. I'm like, oh, this is kind of weird, okay? So he gets back in the car. I'm thinking about whether am I, am I just imagining this, or was this really God talking to me? So I say, okay. So we pray for the discipleship time, and I say, God, and pray for Ben, and I pray for the people alongside the road. So then we go to Subway, because we hadn't had dinner yet. So we go to Subway. And he says it again. So we're praying for the food, and this time I pray for the people alongside the road with the flat tire. I think it, I think it was a flat tire that we could witness to him. So Ben can confirm the story. I, I've never prayed that before since. Never have, never will again probably. So we're driving along. I forget all about it. We're going up to the ranch. So we're driving up to the ranch. One of the last turns onto the road, I make this turn, forgot all about it, and there's a minivan with the tire thing up. I literally said, oh, God, there they are. I was like freaked out. <laughs> I'd forgotten all about it. Just I'm like, now I got a problem because now there's no chance of me not witnessing these people or stopping because Ben's sitting right next to me, you know, the guy I'm supposed to be, you know, discipling. Pull up, ask to help. Their lives are a mess, drugs, divorce, everything. I have to share Christ with them. It was pretty amazing, but um, the Lord is Lord is good like that. Um, I went through a, a depression, pretty serious depression after I got saved from about 2000. Four to 2009, 10. Uh, Pastor Vaughn, Ryan, other people were really key to help me. I was believing things that weren't true, many things. Um, I knew deep, deep, deep down that they weren't true, but really I just wanted to stay the same and be comfortable, so I let myself believe them. Um, my, uh, can you uh, can I see? Can you get your? Can you see if you can get this to work? My Bible. I want to read Colossians, one twenty-seven in a minute. Um, just to finish off, that's my life verse. Talks about Christ in us being the hope of glory. Um, one other thing I learned during my depression was to embrace weakness, um, which is really amazing to me because that's not something my family did. That's not something American culture does. Paul did it very clearly in the book of Second uh, Corinthians, from really nine, ten, eleven, or so on. Oh, thank you. Oh, we got, we got it. Thanks for. It. Um. He says that he would not boast in anything except his weaknesses, to show his weaknesses. 
And the whole chapter 12 thing with the thorn in the flesh and the weakness. And he rejoiced, he says in that passage, I rejoice in my weakness. Why? Because God can be seen as strong. When we're weak, you know, nowhere in the scripture do I see that we're supposed to boast in our flesh or in our own abilities. Even when it's not stated explicitly, you can tell based on the context or the rest of the Bible that it's in Christ we're supposed to boast. Um, Ephesians 1 says, put on the full arm, or Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. So, my life verse, <clears throat> Colossians one twenty seven. to them God has chosen to make known them as the Gentiles. That's me. How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery. You gotta love Paul when he starts heaping on the, the prepositional phrases, glory of the awesome, I mean, it just goes on and on. The riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in us. That's what I can boast about. Who is this Christ that we're to boast about? That's in us, literally in us. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for making peace for me and my wife. In their lives and in their family. Thank you for saving them. Thank you for changing them. We uh, just thank you for the great things you will continue to do in them and through them. Just pray that you would uh, put a hedge of protection around their home, their marriage. Lord, continue to uh, <clears throat> deepen their knowledge and relationship with you. And Lord, just deepen their, their ministry in our lives. We ask in your name. Amen. Amen. I right, love you guys. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. Okay, I think we have class for the younger ones, or did they go out? Did they go out yet? Okay. Yeah, so if the, young, the younger kids in catechism can go out. While they're doing that, why don't you open your Bible to Mark uh, 5. Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. We're going to uh, continue looking at the passage in Mark 5. Mark 5, verse 1. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and his shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. And he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. 
Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains, so all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. Um, Two weeks ago when we looked at this passage, we talked about the uh, reality of the spiritual realm. When I say the spiritual realm, I mean the realm uh, in which God and angels exist. Um, the, the funny thing is, is that that realm is also the realm in which we exist. And that was one of the main points we needed to understand, is that when we talk about the, the world, the universe uh, that we live in, it's not two-storied. It's not, there's not a place where God and angels live, and then a place where humans live, but really, nature is penetrated with supernature. The natural is penetrated with the spiritual. So it, it, what we must avoid is when we think about angels, God, Jesus, demons, things in the spiritual realm, we must avoid thinking of them as being out there. Because it's very possible to believe in them and to say, I believe that God is real, I believe angels and demons are real, but not to believe that they're really here. You understand what I'm saying? They can be real, but they're far away. They're real, but they're kind of in their own compartment of the universe that doesn't really intersect with my compartment. But in fact, nature and supernature, or the natural and the spiritual, are interpenetrated with one another. There's only one world, only one universe, and God and man and spirits inhabit the same universe. So when we talk about things like spiritual warfare, it's not simply something that takes place kind of above us. <laughs> Outside of us somehow. Spiritual warfare, actually, a lot of it takes place right here. Right in the mind. Right in the heart. Right in the soul. Now, what we see here in Mark is an extreme case of demonization um, where the, 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 the man is possessed by not only a demon, but a multitude. How many, we don't know. But he uses the name Legion because there are many. Now, I want to talk, first of all, about demonization a little bit. And I use that word because um, I think it's the best word to describe a multitude of phenomenon, from something as extreme as possession to, to something as as uh, less extreme as, as simple temptation. Okay? Um, I want to read a quote by J.C. Ryle from his work on the Gospels. He says, The whole subject of demonization or cases of satanic possession... Now, he used the word satanic possession, which is actually the wrong word, because as I pointed out in my last sermon, Satan is an individual being, right? There's only one Satan. There are many demons. So if a, if a person is is possessed by a demon, it doesn't mean they're possessed by Satan. Matter of fact, I don't think Satan goes around possessing people. I think demons do. Satan is waiting for the lawless one. Satan will inhabit and possess the Antichrist. But lesser demons are now active, and they, in some cases, 
uh, actually do possess people. He says, the, the case, I'll, I'll use the word demonic because that's really the right word. Uh, cases of demonic possession recorded in the New Testament is unquestionably full of deep mystery. The miserable sufferings of the unhappy people possessed, their clear knowledge that our Lord was the Son of God, their double consciousness, sometimes the Spirit speaking and sometimes the man, all these are deep mysteries, and it can hardly be otherwise. We know little of beings that we cannot see and touch. We know nothing of the manner in which a spirit operates on the mind of a creature with flesh and bones like ourselves. This is the, in philosophy, it's called the old, the old uh, mind matter problem. We don't really understand how uh, the mind interacts with the matter. We don't understand how the non-material affects the material, but we know that it does. Let me give you an illustration. My hand is material, right? My mind is not. You can't see my mind. My mind has, doesn't have a body. So my mind is going to tell my hand <clears throat> to move. And no one can explain how that happens. Now we can look at the chemistry of the brain, but in fact the brain doesn't control you. Your soul does. And your soul is non-material. We do not understand, even in our case, how our own soul can affect our own body, much less how a, an external being, which is spirit, can affect another being's mind or body. We cannot understand this. And the Bible never attempts to explain it. It simply records the reality. Okay? He says, We can see plainly that there are many persons possessed with devils during our Lord's earthly ministry. We can see plainly that bodily possession was something distinct from possession of heart and soul. We can conjecture the reason of their permitted possession. To make it plain that our Lord came to destroy the works of the devil. But we must stop here and we can go no further. But then he goes, in other words, he's saying that by the nature of the case, there's much about demonization we do not understand. What we do know is that it's real. Okay? Um, when I say demonization, I don't just mean possession, because that's an extreme case, and I actually think cases of possession are much less re- rare than other uh, activities of uh, Satan and demons. Um, but it's real nonetheless. So, the point being is, is much about it is shrouded in mystery. Uh, we do not understand, but we do know that Satan is real, we know that demons are real, and when I say real, I don't mean a, a, a category of beings is, that exists far away from us. Okay? They inhabit the same world we do. Now, as we talked about last time, there are orders of beings, and some of these fallen angels are kept in judgment, we're told, in Peter and Jude. They are locked up, they are reserved for judgment. And when you read the book of Revelation, you see, you see that there's a place called the abyss, in which these demons are kept. However, some of them are not currently locked up. That is to say, that God in his providence has permitted some to be free. And they are free, meaning that they, of course, their freedom is limited. We'll discuss that in a moment. But that is to say that they are now um, operating in the world. And against their will ultimately serving God's purposes. But that being said, what are they doing? 
the question is, what are they doing? Let me mention a few things that that um, demons are doing. One is they are working to deceive people. And they're even working to deceive the church. So one of the, the main works of the enemy, and well, I'm going to use the word the enemy, meaning not just Satan himself, but his, his uh, kingdom. One of the main works is the work of deception. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you will. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says to the church here, starting verse 1, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ, or some translations, from the simple devotion to Christ. For he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached. Or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. So Paul's expressing his concern for the Corinthians that they might be deceived by uh, Satan or by demons. First Timothy chapter 4, we see the same sentiment expressed. First Timothy, did I say first? Then I better get there. What am I doing in second? Okay. In First Timothy four verse one, Paul says, "Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared." With a hot iron, etc., etc., etc. So uh, there are spirits that operate in the world, and one of their main objectives is to deceive people. That is to say, to lead them astray from what is true. So, as I pointed out last time, when we talk about the darkness of Satan's kingdom, it's not just a moral darkness, but it's also a spirit. It's also a mental, and even and we could say an intellectual darkness. So he will attempt to foist errors onto people. And uh, I think when you look at uh, our society, you can see various errors that are now prevailing opinions kind of accepted as dogmas, right? The universe is a billion, billions and billions, so many years old. I don't think that's true. We have all kinds of things that are accepted as dogma in our culture um, because Satan has worked very cleverly to deceive people regarding the truth. And there are many, many examples of this. But he also works to tempt us. Now, we don't have time to look at uh, the text, but you should review Genesis 3, the the uh, the account of the fall where Satan operates on Eve and through Eve on Adam and how he very craftily deceives her, um, convincing her that God is not really for her ultimately. And then you read the account of when Jesus was tempted um, and how Satan attempts to undermine uh, also his relationship with God by saying, if you are the Son of God, if, if, you know, the if. Um, Satan is very good at the if, impl- implying, maybe not stating, but implying, suggesting, hinting, innuendo, you know, that sort of thing. And so he... he um, 
He tempts people to do what? He tempts them to disobey the word of God. Now, when you look at Genesis 3, and you look at Matthew, or, or the synoptic accounts of the temptation of Jesus, these are, the, these are the two, these are the iconic passages, right? Because in, in the first account, we have the first Adam. In the second account, we have the second Adam. In the first account, we have the, we have the first Adam who falls to the tempter. In the other account, we have the second Adam who is victorious over the tempter, right? And these are the, the, the two passages which really show us how Satan operates. And one of the things we learn, not just about his operation, but about resist, well yeah, about his operation, is that in both accounts, what is at issue is what did God say? That's what's that when you go back and read the accounts. The 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 fundamental question is what did God say? And it's so beautiful when Jesus responds to Satan because in each in each time there's three three temptations, if you will. Each time he says the same thing. He says it stands written, and then he quotes the word of God. That is the issue. Will we, will men, will men and women, will they bow the knee to God's word? That's always the issue. Fundamentally, it can be dressed up in many different ways. But the heart of the issue is that, in my heart, will I bow the knee to what God has revealed? And in the old days, I was thinking about this recently. In the old days, you know, what the church did is the church would acknowledge, you know, they'd acknowledge that often God's ways are hard and God's ways are mysterious or God's ways are difficult. And then uh, pastors would write books on how to, you know, how to deal with loss and how to work through things and 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 um, how to, basically how to how to bring your heart into submission to God. Now we write books about why the things in the Bible that are hard aren't really in there. It's true. So some of the, some of the passages which go counter to um, the prevailing ethos of our culture, now we're under, really under attack even by evangelicals. Where we just decide, okay, well, you know, this whole gender thing, we can kind of just change those texts in such a way that we have all this latitude to have various new genders and all this other thing, all this other stuff. So, uh, this is exactly what Satan and his minions want. They want to deceive us. And what better way than to deceive the church by convincing the church that it's really embracing the truth? Right? You're really embracing the, the truth when, in fact, you're embracing error. So... Um, We'll talk a little bit more about how how to resist this, but let me let me move forward. So the 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 devil deceives, the devil tempts, and the devil also works through what you could say assault or vexation. Now this could be a whole sermon, but we don't have time. But what do I mean? Look at the book of Job, for example. We see Job is attacked. Um, he experiences physical loss. Then he experiences physical illness. 
Then he experiences slander. And all of it we know because we're seeing behind the scenes. You know, we know what Job didn't know. We know that this was all the operation of Satan. So Satan can, can, uh, uh, assault us, um, Sometimes physically, sometimes literally physically on our bodies. He certainly will raise up people to slander us. He opposes the work of God. Paul told the Thessalonians, I wanted to come and see you, but Satan hindered me. Now, he doesn't say how, but he was wanted to go minister and Satan stopped it. Um, he will also raise up persecution against the church. You read Revelation 2 and chapter 11, you see that, that uh, men are energized, if you will, to attack the church because uh, demons are operating and inflaming their passions against the truth. Another uh, thing that demons do or Satan does is that he sifts. And when I say sift, um, and you remember this passage in Luke where, where Jesus says to Peter, he says, well, let's just look at it. Go to Luke 22. In Luke uh, 22, in verse 31, it says, And the Lord said, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Uh, you know, think about this. Can you, do you think Satan's ever asked God for you? He asked God for Job. Now he's asking God for Peter. Stuff's real, man. Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So, uh, from one perspective, when Satan or, or demons are permitted to, to assault a Christian, you can say from one perspective it might be temptation. But from another perspective, it may be a sifting, if you will. And of course, uh, God permits this, for his good purposes. All this to say, and I don't want to spend any more time really talking about the dark side, but all this to say that that when when we look at Mark 5 and other passages in the Gospels, when it talks about uh, whether it's possession or lesses, lesser kinds of demonization, we have to understand that it's real and it, it's not something that just happened back in Bible times. And, and what I find is that the more you are alert and aware, the more you see. The more you see. Um, so we must be alert and we must be aware that angels, both good and bad, but in this context we're talking about the, the fallen ones, that they are real. Satan is real. He's operating in the world. And um, we need to take this seriously and realize um, that it's not just a theoretical uh, doctrine. It's very real and it affects our lives. Now, in the, in the account in Mark, what we see is what we see in every case where Jesus encounters a demon. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Okay? Um, go back to Mark 5. And I think one of the reasons, as I said last time, that this so much uh, space is given to this account, this is the largest account of any kind of uh, demon possession in the Bible, right here. And I think it's because Mark is, is constricting his gospel in such a way that he's showing 
attempting to show who Jesus is. Okay, he, the previous chapter he he has shown that Jesus was Lord of nature by quelling the storm. Now he's confronted with not just a man who's demon possessed, but really a worst—it's a worst case scenario. This guy was cutting himself. He was—he was infused with supernatural strength because he was full of demons, and they couldn't chain him. He lived out in 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 uh, uh, in the tombs in a, uh, amongst you know a, a foul environment. And there's there's. Swine nearby. The, the picture is supposed to be one that should incite both horror and disgust in us. Worst case scenario. So the Lord of Nature now confronts a, a major force in the spiritual realm, a legion of demons. And when he arrives, it says that in verse 6, that the man, it says he ran and worshipped him. Now, one of the weird things about these these passages, as Ryle pointed out, sometimes the demon's talking and sometimes the man's talking. You know, it'll say he said, then it said they said. You know, so it's like, what? So, the man's worshipping. says, and he cried out with a loud voice, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you that you do not torment me. Um, so, what we see in Scripture when there's these encounters with demons, it's almost invariably they know who Jesus is. It's astounding. Go back earlier in Mark and look at uh, chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, verse 23, it says, Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Then Jesus said, shut up. <laughs> now notice chapter later uh, in chapter 2. Um, no, chapter 3. Jesus is, is on a healing mission. Verse 10, for he had healed many, 310. So so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him, and the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, You are the Son of God. And so we see this all through the Gospels, that the, these, these demons recognized Jesus essentially for who he was. So they saw that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God, which may, may mean one of two things. Either they recognized this inherent deity... Or they recognized his his um, office as Messiah, or perhaps they recognized both. Now, I don't know how much information demons have, okay? But it's clear that they know a whole lot more than we think they know, because they they knew they knew who Jesus was. And I think that that, that when Satan uh, attacked Jesus in, in the temptation that's recorded, and then he he was thwarted, that information got out quick. Like, uh oh, this is the man. Okay, this is him. They knew the prophecies. They knew Messiah was coming, and um, they, I think they were alerted. Okay, so. Now, it's also possible that they recognized him because you have to remember, Jesus as the God-man appeared in time, but but Jesus as the Son of God exists, existed for eternity, right? So in this spirit realm, Jesus had been there forever. 
And these demons had been there for a long time, thousands of years. So they probably already knew who Jesus was. But then he became incarnate. And then uh, engaged in battle with them. So Jesus comes and he's recognized as the Son of God. I believe they recognize his inherent deity. I think they already knew who he was. But, you know, we must be careful as we, uh, we don't have direct uh, statements to this effect in Scripture. But I think they also understood his office as mediator or Messiah. And, the, and in other words, they understood that this Jesus really was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that he had authority. Uh, we have we have Old Testament prophecies going back to Genesis about a king that was going to come who would have a scepter. Of course, that's talking of Messiah. Psalm 2 says that God says to his son uh, that he's going to set him on his holy hill. That the nations will rage against him, but that God will laugh. Okay, We see many texts in scripture that talk about Jesus being a lord, Jesus being a king. And the, and the lordship and the kingship of Jesus is not just over men. It is over all intelligent beings. His kingship over nature was demonstrated in chapter 4. Now he is demonstrating his kingship over the spiritual world. And this is what's striking to me as I study this this passage is that this was before Jesus even went to the cross. And yet we are told that through the cross he disarmed principalities and powers. So if Jesus had authority over the spiritual realm before, before his passion, how much more now that he has defeated sin and death? How much more now that as he said in John, he has uh, cast out Satan, or now that I'm basically going to the cross, Satan has no part in me. So whatever right or authority Satan may have had, Jesus now restored that authority to God, and I think... What he did is he really, through his humanity, restored that authority back to man. Because man had the garden. It wasn't given to Satan. Satan came in and deceived and then stole, right? So the second man comes and he restores what the evil one had stolen. Um, so he, he, we're told in Colossians that he's disarmed principalities and powers. Let me read a quote by... Uh, A.A. Hodge, this is really, uh, really good. He says this, he says, Christ's kingdom of power includes the universal moral government of God over all his intelligent creatures. He says, angels and devils and whatever intelligent creatures may exist in other worlds must constitute one systematic moral whole with the human race. The entire moral empire of God must be governed on the same general principles of righteousness. The will of God must be the common rule of all. His love, their common motive. His glory, their common end. His fellowship, their common goal. Christ, in this widest sense, the widest sense, is King of kings and Lord of lords. God has appointed His Son heir of all things. He is placed far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Amen? All in heaven and all on earth who are 
um, who are to bow at the name of Jesus include all rational creatures. And all men and angels, including demons, are to be gathered together at his judgment seat. The devils are reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. A little bit more. He exercises this universal moral government providentially in various ways. He employs angels as ministering spirits for his people at present, and he will employ them as his executive agents in the siftings of the great judgment. He restrains and controls the action of the devil and his angels, the spirits of the power of the air. He controls all events for the good of his people. Especially he directs events to the end of affecting their complete discipline and education and consequent preparation for the enjoyment of his glory. The end is the complete redemption of his people. So Christ is ruling over all, and he's ruling uh, not just men and women, humanity. He's ruling over the, what we call the spiritual realm, both the good and the fallen angels. So when he's called the Lord of Lords, that includes all lords. It includes all dominions, all principalities, and all powers, including angelic ones. So Jesus is governing over uh, the evil one, and he has authority over the evil one. So when Jesus encounters a demon in the New Testament, Jesus kicks their booty. Because he has authority over them. And he assumes his authority, he takes his authority, and by the word of his mouth, he commands them, and they must obey. They must obey. Now, let me wrap up quickly. Uh, I could say a whole lot about the application of this, but let me just say a couple things very quickly. The victory of Jesus over the kingdom of darkness is guaranteed. You should be applauding that. The victory of Jesus over Satan and all demons is guaranteed. This will happen. It is revealed to us in uh, Scripture. It's in uh, Revelation 12, 17, Revelation 19, many, many, many texts that we don't have time to look at. Nevertheless, even though uh, Christ's victory is guaranteed, there is still a spiritual battle going on. And that spiritual battle is not way up in the heavenlies, it's right here. It's in the here and now. Paul says that we wrestle, we wrestle, we wrestle. You can delete that from the podcast. We wrestle with what? Not flesh and blood. We're not fighting people. Even when you're fighting people, you're not fighting people. We're fighting spirits, principalities, powers, rulers of this present age, he says. So we are in a, a combat with spiritual forces that we cannot see with the physical eye, but we can see with the eye of faith. So how do we fight? Well, Paul says to put on God's armor. So he talks about truth. He talks about the gospel. He talks about righteousness. He talks about the word of God. He talks about prayer. All of these are weapons that we use in our battle. He says to take these things and then to stand against uh, these powers. Okay? We stand against them by taking the armor that God has given us. 
But we also stand against them by submitting ourselves to God. Now this is really important. Let me just show you a couple verses. And then we're going to conclude. Uh, Look at James 4 for a minute. In James 4, uh, Paul says, excuse me, Paul says, James says, verse 6, uh, but he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, notice verse 7, therefore, submit to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. These two things are not two separate things. We have to, we cannot resist the devil if we are in resistance against God. Are you hearing this? In order to resist the devil, we must be in submission to God. Otherwise, we are resisting God and will end up being in submission to the devil. So we must first submit to God. Uh, look at First Peter, right after James. Peter says essentially the same thing. He says this. He says in uh, chapter 5, verse 5, uh, First Peter... Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Well, that's a message our culture doesn't want to hear. Especially young people don't want to hear. Submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive one to another and be clothed with humility. Why? For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So notice here, just like James, Peter ties in this thing of submission with uh, spiritual warfare. There are, I believe, in the Christian life, there's two danger, there's two avenues that are dangerous for the Christian. That, that makes him vulnerable to spiritual attack. You want to hear him? Yes. You ready? Yes. The first is pride. Okay? Pride is the original sin. <clears throat> Meaning, not, not necessarily Adam and Eve's sin, but Satan's original sin was pride. He was exalted with pride, and he was decided that he would ascend to the throne of God. How much more arrogant can you be? Right? And thus, what Satan does is he wants to inflame us with pride. Well, the opposite of pride is submission. And so, um, we must let God deal with our hearts and bring our hearts into submission. And we must deal with the pride that is latent in every human heart. Every human heart. I'm so glad Lauren said we did earlier about when he was up here and he said, you know, I want to get the glory, but it really belongs to Jesus. He's saying what is really true of all of us. We all want the glory. We want recognition. We want all this stuff, right? That is dangerous stuff there. Because that sentiment is, is, is the same sentiment which inspired Satan. Notice this in 1 Timothy 3. If you want to turn there quickly. Notice this. Paul is talking about examining men for, for church leadership. Uh, in this case, the eldership. And notice what he says. Um, in First Timothy 3, verse 6, he says, Not a novice or a new convert. Lest, notice, lest being puffed up with pride, 
he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. The same sin brings the same condemnation. The sin of Satan, the original sin was pride. When we are proud, proud, when we are arrogant, we are aligning our hearts with the devil. And we must be very careful here. Because he is so smart. He is so subtle. He's so deceptive. The way he works into people's lives. And pride is, a, is like opening the door to him. Submit to God. Bring your heart and your mind in submission to his word. That is your place of safety. Secondly, the second thing we need to be aware of is anger. Anger. Notice this in uh, Ephesians. In Ephesians, Paul is uh, exhorting us to a new life. A new life in Christ. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, he says in 22, Put off the old man, or put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man that was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for members of one another. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Well, you know, theoretically, you could say any sin gives the devil an opportunity, which is true. But it just so happens that here he links it with anger. And this word give place means don't give him a beachhead, if you will. Don't give him opportunity. Don't grant him a place to basically set up a camp in your life to do his work. And uh, if there's two things that are true about Satan, it's this. One is his arrogance and the other is his hatred. He comes to kill and destroy. He hates God. He hates holiness. He hates goodness. He is fueled by arrogance and rage. And those two sins particularly we must be aware of as avenues that he will try to use in our lives. If you are given to, to the sin of anger, I encourage you to repent of that sin. And I encourage you to, to ask God to deal with you in that area of your life. I hear people say, well, you know, that's just the way I am. No, you are not. We never, ever, ever say that when it comes to sin. We are new creatures in Jesus Christ. We are not to be in, in submission to sin. We're not to be uh, enslaved to sin. We are not to be in submission to the devil. We can have freedom in Jesus Christ. Okay? No matter what besetting sins you had before you came to Jesus, you can be free from those sins. Don't ever say, that's the way I am. Because that is a denial of the gospel. The way you are is you are in Christ Jesus, created for holiness and righteousness. That's the way you are. But you have to see it. You have to believe it. And you have to possess it. So, uh, be, uh, as Paul says, be vigilant. Excuse me, Peter. Be vigilant. Beware. Be sober. The devil is real. Demons are real. Um, they are laboring against us and the cause of God. But if we will submit ourselves to God... 
and we will uh, stay close to Jesus, we have the victory. Amen? All right, let's stand and pray. Lord, I thank you uh, that when we call you Lord, it's true. And you are not just Lord of our lives, you are the Lord of the universe, of all beings, all creatures, both good and evil. And we thank you for that. And we thank you that no trial or temptation or assault enters our life that is not permitted by you. And we thank you, Lord, that because of your redemption through the cross, that we can be free from sin. I thank you that we can have victory over the evil one through your work on the cross and through the power of your spirit. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people that are alert that are sober regarding these things. And I pray, Lord, that um, we would be a people that walk in victory over the evil one. And we ask, Lord, for your glory. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.